American thought and politics will be at the mercy of those who operate these stations. If placed in the hands of a single selfish group, then woe be to those who dare to differ with them. A quick reminder that we have launched our two-in-one winter fundraiser to raise funds for my upcoming climate ride event, uh, raising money to fight against climate change, probably goes without saying, alongside a membership drive that's to support the show, and we are including incentives like uh, t-shirts and hoodies that we only make available during fundraisers. So check out the campaign at bestfulleft.com slash winter17. Of course, you'll also find a big, obvious banner right on our homepage, or you can just click the link right in the show notes on the device you're using. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from We the Podcast, The Bradcast, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, The Laura Flanders Show, Thinking Cap, and The Tom Hartman Program. This week, we're talking about market concentration, how huge corporations control entire sectors of our economy without having to compete, and why it matters to you. Yes, you. You know, back in the old days, if two or three companies controlled an entire industry, we understood that this would make it hard for small businesses to break into the market. It would make it difficult on competition and even consumer choice. We wrote antitrust laws that restricted corporations for cornering the market and trying to engage in anti-competitive behavior. Using their size to keep out the competition, stop choice, and limit people's opportunity. These antitrust laws are still on the books and are among the strongest antitrust and anti-monopoly laws in the world. Then, in the early 1980s, our government decided to stop enforcing anti-monopoly laws. From that point forward, we saw mergers that consolidated entire industries into the hands of a few. As a result, our economy is ruled by monopoly power. There is only a handful of big banks that control our entire financial sector. Our beverage industry is controlled by a few massive corporations. And our telecom industry is ruled by just four or five companies. And companies like Walmart and Google and Amazon have such a tight grip on the marketplace that they essentially do not have to compete. This week, I'm talking to Barry Lynn, author of the book Cornered, and one of the foremost experts on monopoly power in this country. Barry doesn't keep it all high in the sky. Barry breaks it down so everybody can understand why having these big monopolies in all these industries across the entire economy is a bad thing and really needs change. He wants you to know about it. Barry, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Barry Lennon. I direct the uh, Open Markets Institute, which is a, a new organization because recently the Open Markets Program was part of the New America Foundation, but we got kicked out for taking on Google. Well, you know, I read your book, Cornered. It's a great book. I recommend it. But uh, let me just ask you this. You know, uh, what was your main point in Cornered? And, uh, you know, what, what is antitrust? What is anti-monopoly legislation? And, uh, you know, why do we have it? Yeah, so the main point that I was making in Cornered uh, is that we have a really, really big monopoly problem in America today. You know, as you said, you know, this is probably the worst concentration we have ever seen in the United States. It's worse than the Gilded Age. 
And in the Gilded Age, it was back in the 1890s or so? 1890s, up through the, like, the first decade of the 20th century, you know, a little more than 100 years ago. This is the time of the plutocrats. And, you know, the plutocrats pretty much ran the country back then. They're back. They are sure back. And these guys got tools that the last group of plutocrats did not have. I wish they had. Oh, yeah. These guys have spy devices. They have, they actually, they have the ability to track what you're doing and, and see where you're going. And, and, uh, this is something that no plutocrat back in the old days ever had. But, you know, but at that time, there also was a response to the market concentration. You had a president like Theodore Roosevelt. You had the progressive movement, which made uh, anti-monopoly a cornerstone of their work. Do you see any movement today, uh, sort of pushing back against this market concentration that we see so prevalent? Uh, yes, I mean we we see the movement sort of breaking out right now. It's been people were really quiet for a long time. People just didn't see the problem. Uh, but just in the last year, we've seen all kinds of movement here in Washington, but also across the United States. It's uh, you know for the first time. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been studying concentration for twenty years and the the ills of concentration. And uh, you know now over the last year, for the first time, I see real movement. So here are two related questions. How bad is it, and what are the ills of concentration? Well, I'll do the, first, uh, the second one first, and it's like the, you know, we've been taught for the last generation to say, oh, well, concentration is bad for me as a consumer. It means higher prices. Uh, it means less choice, and that's true. It does mean higher prices. It means less choice. But the, the real fundamental ills of concentration of power, concentration of control, uh, is a loss of liberty. It's the loss of, of our ability to, say, get a new job when I wanted to get a new job. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I become uh, uh, captured by my employer. Uh, what it also means is the, 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 the subversion of our democracy. When a few people control all of the wealth and when they control the main levers of power in our economy, they control our country. We do not have a democracy if we allow this kind of concentration of power. Liberty, democracy, that is what is now under threat. Could you tease that out a little bit? I mean, like, so uh, how do the plutocrats, I'm talking about the big uh, concentrated business leaders, uh, how, how do they manipulate our democracy? Uh, well, they manipulate our democracy through the investment of money. Uh, they manipulate, you know, in, in, in campaigns. Uh, they Campaign donations. That's right, campaign donations and just lobbying. Lobbying and 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 uh, you know just uh, uh, choosing which candidates get to run you know just uh, uh, but also just you know basically setting the table in Washington determining what the agenda is going to be you know what uh, you know what are we going to talk about and what are we not going to talk about this is actually the you know, with us I mean we were. Uh, at New America, when Open Markets was there, uh, we were trying to shine a light on the ways that uh, uh, Google and other platform monopolies, we, we're not only an anti-Google shop, we're an anti-monopoly shop. Uh, so we were looking at how a number of companies were are misusing their power, uh, and uh, we got booted. And that's one of the ways that these corporations, these powers, uh, uh, sort of uh, subvert our democracy. It's, we, it becomes impossible for us to actually have open debate. So they set the terms of conversation. I can tell you this, Barry, you know, as a member of Congress, um, so much of what uh, gets discussed around here is driven by this or that uh, think tank, quite frankly. I mean, uh, and, and if the think tanks are like, hey, we don't talk about monopoly, uh, we don't use the M word, <laughs> then that then that topic is less likely to be uh, uh, on the on the uh, list of people around here. 
No, that's absolutely right. And we, you know, we've been tracking this for a long time, and we really were for a very long time the only people that used the M word. Uh, Monopoly. Yes, I said it. And we, uh, but this year, you know, we now have other groups that are working with us. We have friends at CAP. We have friends at Roosevelt. Yeah, the Roosevelt Institute. We have friends uh, over even in Brookings now. All right. And so this, uh, we have friends on the uh, uh, on the Republican side uh, who are starting to understand that uh, this isn't a game anymore. This isn't a matter of just like enriching my friends. This is what we're playing for now in this country is the preservation of our democracy and our most fundamental liberties. Well, you got some good friends on the Dem side. I mean, you got Elizabeth Warren. Well, she's been very vocal on this issue. Uh, and uh, Hank Johnson uh, over here has been great. Ro Khanna has been uh, on this issue. And even little old me has been talking about this issue a little bit. So you, do you sense, sense that there are more members of Congress willing to talk up on this issue of uh, cartels, monopoly, market concentration? No, absolutely. The the change from, say, two years ago is 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 fantastic. Uh, and, uh, and, and, actually, and the first step, and we, uh, I can't say that we are on the verge of actually having a fix here to this problem, but the first step to fixing the problem is seeing the problem, and the second step is speaking about the problem. And we now have a bunch of brave leaders in Congress, in the Senate, uh, who are talking about this. And that's what helps the American people understand that we have a problem and that we can fix it. A couple of weeks ago on this program, we spoke with media reform activist Sue Wilson of the Media Action Center about the plans that the uh, Federal Communications Commission chief, Ajit Pai, Donald Trump's very right-wing selection to chair the FCC, about, about his planned vote to kill what amounts to some of the very last of the protections that had been in place for our nation's public airwaves. Very few if any, uh, including Democrats and media alike, not to mention Republicans, of course, very few had been setting off the alarms about this vote at the FCC. Well, that vote happened late last week, and as expected, on the commission, which has two Democrats and two Republicans and a chair which is appointed by whoever sits in the White House, that commission voted to gut some of the last regulations keeping one company from pretty much buying up all of the TV stations and their newsrooms in your hometown. Moreover, the decades-old FCC regulations that have now been gutted had prevented a company from both owning uh, both a, a newspaper and a television station in the same town and helped the, the type of huge... Uh, prevent the, 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 the type of huge corporate media mergers that we have seen elsewhere, at least when it comes to the publicly owned airwaves that we, the people, are supposed to have control over. Incredibly enough, as Dana Floberg of the nonpartisan media watchdog group FreePress.net noted recently, Chairman Pai 
had made the case in a recent New York Times op-ed that the reason this rule needed to be done away with after decades of helping to ensure at least some independence at the local level of broadcasting, for example, on local TV news, which surveys have shown people trust more than they do network or uh, or cable news. Um, Pai argued, Chairman Pai argued that the rule change was needed to help, quote, the struggle to help rescue the struggling newspaper industry. That's why he had to do away with these uh, with these protections that kept these large companies from buying up all of the local TV stations all over the country. Now, the newspaper industry is certainly struggling, but is allowing a handful of major corporations to buy up TV stations and newspapers in your town the best way to help struggling papers? For that matter, uh, would it would it help those papers at all if this if this happened? Or would it only serve to further dilute all of our local media reporting uh, and uh, and the public airwaves ownership of that uh, news that comes out across those across those local TV stations? Well, last week, shortly after the FCC's vote, FreePress.net tweeted, "Say goodbye to local media." The FCC just voted to destroy media ownership protections. But uh, Dana, uh, Chairman Pai also made the argument in his New York Times op-ed that this uh, that that doing away with these rules, some of the last protection that we have left for our public airwaves, uh, that doing away with that rule will somehow be good for struggling newspapers. Uh, if he's right, how how would that help uh, local papers to survive, as he argues? And is he, in fact, right about that portion of his argument? Uh, no, he's absolutely wrong here. Um, he's, he's the only thing that the Chairman Pai gets right here is that he, he makes the statement that the media landscape has changed dramatically in the past several decades, which it absolutely has with the advent of cable and the Internet. There are a lot more digital outlets. But the real question we should be asking is, is this the right policy solution to deal with those changes? And the answer is absolutely not. Furthermore, what Pai is suggesting and what he has done now is nothing new. We've already tried using deregulation and consolidation to help reinvigorate struggling newspapers and other traditional media outlets, Mm -hmm. and it hasn't worked. We've seen more journalists being laid off. We've seen newsrooms being shuttered. We've seen communities still struggling to find news that they can trust, especially in this political moment. And all of these things have been happening as the broadcast and newspaper industries have been hit with wave after wave of consolidation Mm -hmm. that have only been allowed because these rules have been slowly lobbied to death by the broadcast industry since they were put into place. So Pai's claims that somehow everything will be solved if all of these outlets, if big conglomerates like Sinclair can just buy everybody up, is absolutely counterfactual. When Sinclair buys a new station, buys and goes through one of these mergers, because its its decision to buy Tribune is is not at all its its first attempted at merging. Sinclair Broadcasting is already the largest broadcaster in the U.S. Mm-hmm. When they've done this before, when they've bought other outlets, one of the first things they do is they go through and they gut their newsrooms.
Nicholas Johnson is best known for his controversial term as a dissenting FCC commissioner during the Johnson-Nixon era. His book from that time, How to Talk Back to Your Television Set, is just as relevant today as it was back then, even during the Internet age, with its critique of media consolidation and the manufacturing of news. He currently teaches at the University of Iowa College of Law with an emphasis on communications and Internet law. And since 2006, he has posted more than 1,000 blog essays. He is included in the Yale Biographical Dictionary of American Law as one of 700 leading figures in the history of American law from the colonial era to the present day. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Nicholas Johnson. Thank you. Good to be here. Welcome indeed, Nick. And I know you know a lot about social media and the Internet, and I once hosted a program on public radio called High Tech Times. But this hour wants to focus on the traditional media. And so I want you to sort of educate us about the 1934 Communications Act when radio came on before TV. And of course, it applies to TV. And then we're going to talk about the chairman of the Federal Communications Committee, right commission, right out of the industry, Ajit Pai, and what is happening to shut out the American people from their own views and their own concerns on the property that they own, public airwaves, and to rig these cable franchise agreements so that the cable companies control who gets on and who doesn't and charges what they want. So that's a big agenda, but nobody can streamline it better than you. So let's start with the Federal Communications Act of 1934 and what it requires. Okay, and then after we deal with all these subjects, what are we going to teach in the class the next semester? (laughs) Right. Let me begin with some preliminaries, if I may, and I'll be as brief as I can. I think it's important to make the point that the FCC and the Communications Act are not just one other regulatory agency. They are dealing with, when it comes to media, one of the most fundamental pillars of a democracy. And when we mess around with that, we lose what America is really all about. And it's a shame to miss that. And I think another thing to say at the outset is that other countries went about this much more intelligently than we did, because I guess Lord Reith and the BBC would have been the first, but others followed, NHK and Sverdjus Radio in Sweden and, and others. And they were prescient enough to see that capitalism should play no role in anything as important as broadcasting to the people of their countries. And interestingly, a lot of Lord Reith's ideas were in fact shared not only by, I was only president of the United States, Herbert Hoover, who was then serving as Secretary of Commerce, but by many of the broadcasters as well. Hoover said, it is inconceivable that we should allow so great a possibility for service, for news, entertainment, education, to be drowned in advertising chatter. And even the National Association of Broadcasters supported that idea at the time of the 1934 Act. And Congress was very prescient about the dangers of media ownership, which is amazing back at a time when a radio receiver was a magic box and people couldn't figure out how 
the little tiny humans got inside there. Congressman Luther Johnson warned his colleagues at the time. He said, American thought and politics will be at the mercy of those who operate these stations. If placed in the hands of a single selfish group, then woe be to those who dare to differ with them. And that, of course, is exactly what we're uh, dealing with now. Right across the border, the Canadians did it differently, too. They have CBC, a state-owned television network. They also allow private television networks, but only in America. Have we given up the public airways to fewer and fewer giant media conglomerates like Fox and Sinclair buying up all kinds of properties, including newspapers and radio stations? So what are the requirements that apply today that the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, is not paying attention to in terms of standards, public trust? Well, let me just say on that before I get to Pi, just to finish this out, that the act began, the 34 Act began, it is the purpose of this act to maintain the control of the United States over all the channels of radio transmission and to provide for the use of such channels, but not the ownership thereof. The use, but not the ownership. So that's the source of the expression, the public owns the airwaves. I mean, it's almost as if the broadcasters were government employees, except we kept this unfortunate element of capitalism. The FCC told the licensees where they could build, how much minimum and maximum hours of operation they could have, their transmitter's power, the direction of their signals, limits on how many licensees they could hold, the maximum amount of advertising they could have, and the minimums of educational and cultural programming, news, public affairs, public service announcements that they had to provide, so that what the broadcasters had was worthless equipment until they had a license. And the license was only good for three years when I was on the commission. And what they applied as the standard, according to the Act, is, quote, the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Well, by now, it hasn't just been pie. This has been going on for a long time. But, you know, he's got a background in working with Republican political programs in the Senate, primarily. Uh, He represented Verizon. And then he's been in the culture of the FCC, which has been decidedly non-regulatory. I thought it was horrible when I was there. I wrote some 400 individual opinions describing how awful the FCC was. Now we look back on the 60s that the FCC is the golden age of responsible regulation. That's right. (laughs) So Pi was kind of seeped in this culture before he was put on the commission and then made chairman, but he has something on his webpage that makes him sound like your twin brother. But you look at what he's actually done, he's opposed net neutrality, notwithstanding the hundreds of American citizens who wrote in supporting it. He seems to be all in favor of giving Sinclair even more television stations. This is the outfit that supplies its local stations with must-carry hard right-wing commentary that they have to play on the station as if it was 
local news. And with this merger, they're going to have access to 72% of American homes. In my day, we limited them to five VHF stations and then another two UHF stations they could have. That was the maximum. Now we're talking about radio owners with over a 1,000 stations, and Sinclair will have hundreds of television stations. And that itself is just a terrible hazard to the values of the First Amendment and its role in making democracy possible. So Pi, unfortunately, has not been good news. He's also making his decisions by dictate, by a kind of FCC executive order which may be challengeable in court. But on issue after issue, he's against the audience. He's for the big broadcast syndicates and corporations. It's so consistent. The only time he's pushed back on Trump is when Trump threatened to take the licenses away from these companies that allowed criticism of Trump. He said, well, that's not the way it's done. But let me inform our listeners of this uh, speech by one of your predecessors, Newton Minow, was nominated to be the chairman of the FCC under John Kennedy, President John Kennedy. And one of the first things he did in 1961 was give a speech to the broadcast industry in a big ballroom, and he called television, quote, a vast wasteland, end quote, shook up the industry. But as you say, television today compared to television then I mean, it's gotten so much worse when you turn on the TV Saturday afternoon. Is this what's going on in America? You know, bicycles flipping in the air, infomercials about certain cutlery and kitchens that you can get, uh, grade C movie repeats, and on and on. And daytime talk radio, there's no more Phil Donahue and the important issues he brought to the public. There's no more Michael Jackson in radio in Los Angeles. It's gotten so much worse. Can you comment on this? I mean, what kind of price are we paying in this country for this trash, this trivia? Well, we're we're paying a terrible price. And as I put it when I was on the commission, it's not even the evil that the television industry does, as bad as that is in terms of encouraging consumption and portraying defining the role of women, but it's what they fail to do. When you consider, it's a evil of nonfeasance, when you consider that the average toddler today, by the time they're five years old, will have spent more hours watching television and other screens than the number of hours they will later spend in a college classroom earning a BA degree. And as I've said, all television is educational television. The only question is, what is it teaching? And it certainly is not teaching the values of a democratic society with the information that citizens need. I did some writing about the ABC Evening News. The Evening News, I've decided it's become the National Enquirer of television. There's none of what Americans need in order to function in a democratic society with the information provided that they need. And when you consider that the average toddler, by the time they're five years old, will have spent more hours watching television and other screens than the number of hours they'll spend in a college classroom earning a BA degree, you got to ask, what are they learning? Because 
as I've said, all television is educational television. The only question is, what is it teaching? A long chapter in media history came to an unlikely close on Sunday night with a sale agreement for Time, Inc., the publisher of once prestigious magazine titles like Time, Sports Illustrated, and People, the Meredith Corporation, the owner of Family Circle, Better Homes and Gardens, and uh, other family-type magazines like that, agreed to purchase Time, Inc. in an all-cash transaction valued at nearly $3 billion. Now, uh, Iowa-based Meredith Corp. also owns 17 local TV stations that reach 12 million U.S. households. So now they own all of those magazines, all of Time, Inc.'s magazines. They own 17 television stations around the country. But here may be uh, the most uh, troubling part. The uh, the deal was made possible in part by an infusion of $650 million from the private equity firm, uh, private equity arm of Charles and David Koch. That's right. The billionaire Koch brothers known for using their wealth and political connections to advance conservative, so-called conservative causes. The Koch brothers now essentially own Time magazine. Meredith's president, chief operating officer Tom Hardy, said this is a transformative transaction for Meredith Corp. Charles Koch, the chief executive of Koch Industries, and David Koch have long sought to shape political discourse through their support of nonprofit organizations, the New York Times uh, notes, uh, through nonprofits, through universities, through think tanks. But in the announcement of the deal, Meredith said that the private equity fund Koch Equity Development would not have a seat on Meredith's board of directors and would have no influence over Meredith's editorial or managerial operations. Do you believe that? Do you buy that? The Koch brothers bought uh, Time magazine for $650 million, but they're going to have no editorial control over it whatsoever. I think I seem to remember Rupert Murdoch uh, and saying something similar when they bought the Wall Street Journal. And you've seen how that has changed over the past, I don't know how many years. Um, the the uh, spokesman for Coke Industries said the Cokes have no plans to take an active role in the expanded company. And they're just looking, they say, quote, we're looking at deals across all sectors, all industries. This just happened to be one that made sense. The deal is expected to close in the first quarter of 2018, just in time for the midterm elections next year. Now, looking at uh, Meredith's press release on this late last night, the president and chief operating officer uh, said uh, this is a transformative transaction for Meredith Corp and follows a fiscal 2017 year in which we posted the highest revenue, profit and earnings per share in our 115 year history. So in t- fiscal 2017, they made d- earnings and profits higher than ever in their 115-year history of, of, of being in existence. And they also say when you combine our strong local te- television business 
which has grown operating profit 15% annually over the last five years with the trusted multi-platform uh, content creation of Meredith and Time. It creates a powerful media uh, company serving consumers and advertisers alike. I might say serving advertisers, not so much consumers, but in any event, we now have a new huge Multimedia operation that is essentially at least owned in part by the Koch brothers. Let's say you have someone who builds a great new app and it requires faster speeds than old apps. What happens? People go to their, they say this app is amazing. They go to their ISP, they say, I want a faster internet connection. ISP makes more money, it takes that money, it invests in the network to speed the overall network up, which then opens the door to someone else to come along to build the next app, the next use that requires more speed, and then you get back in that cycle. And that cycle is what drives all it, but the cycle requires among all the pieces that new, new apps, new uses of the internet can just exist online, that people can start something new to fuel that growth and that innovation. Holiday shopping on your mind? Gift subscriptions to newspapers and magazines were big last year. Subscriptions to the New York Times and the Washington Post spiked soon after the election as the penny seemed to drop that without an informed electorate, we have a pretty dodgy democracy. A year on, American democracy is in way more trouble than a few gift subs can fix. While the conventional wisdom has had it that the Trump White House has had a hard time getting much done, the Federal Communications Commission has been doing a lot, none of it good for public decision-making, as in democracy, you know, the system with the people, the demos, the debate. Historically, the mission of the FCC has been to regulate the public airwaves for the sake of our democracy by promoting localism, competition, and diversity. Trump's communications chair, Ajit Pai, is against all of that. Pai, a former staffer to Jeff Sessions, leads the commission's Republican majority in virtual lockstep. He's made it more than clear that he plans to reverse net neutrality rules. That would make it legal for big cable providers to privilege some content over others, their own, for example, over independents like us. Pi's comfortable with monopolies of opinion and ownership, too. If the FCC goes ahead and repeals the last limits on how many stations a single entity can own, that will do horrible things to your phone bill, but the impact on democracy will be even worse. Sinclair Broadcasting, for example. If that company gets to buy Tribune, they'll have stations that reach three-quarters of the U.S. population with one agenda, Trump's. Sinclair's hired former Trump advisors to record daily commentaries, which all the local stations are forced to air under a must-carry rule that is strictly enforced. Many stations, one voice. It's time we stopped fiddling with the FCC. What do I really want for Christmas? A few huge, sexy, monopoly-busting, local media-funding antitrust lawsuits. Right now, where those fundamental rules are being written 
as we both as we speak and as you are listening to this podcast right now. And that's the time where policymakers and decision makers really need to hear from people outside of Washington that this really is important. And so uh, take it seriously and know that when you do weigh in, it makes a huge difference. Why did the FCC consider it necessary in 2006 and then again in 2015 to have those rules in the first place? I'm assuming they were solving for a problem that existed. Yeah. And to put some context, who was against you moving forward with those rules and those kind of value statements right. kind of coming into pass? Because I think oftentimes, uh, you know, there's this idea, oh, government is um, too regulated and, you know, you're you're doing things to constrain free enterprise. Um, but in many ways, net neutrality and this ability to just access the Internet is like the opening up of a world for everybody else. It yeah. is equality of a kind that we haven't seen before. And you wonder, well, who's really against that? <laughs> All right. That's a nice setup. But here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> here's what I'm going to do. I am going to take you back much further to 1934. Ooh, OK. Oh I know. Before me, before you, before everyone here. 1934 is when the Communications Act right. became law. And there are fundamental principles in that law about non-discrimination. In other words, all of our internet traffic needs to be treated equally. And when you treat traffic equally, everyone has the opportunity to amplify their own voices, to make connections, to build community online. And the great thing about the internet you were talking about before is that if you have a good idea, your idea can reach not just around the corner, but can reach globally. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that continues. And that's what those network neutrality values are really all about. Um, you know, in your position as this commissioner, when you see engagement on an issue that's so important to you and your colleagues and really to everyone, what difference does that make when you're seeing voices chime in on such a critical issue? Yeah, well, I can't speak for my colleagues, but I love it. Mm. That's democracy in action. That's people feeling like they have a duty as a citizen to speak out, to make noise, to reach out to their government and tell them what they think. And I think when they do that en masse, the agency needs to listen. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're just listening to a bunch of high-powered lawyers and lobbyists from Washington who come in with the same talking points for the same industries. So when I think when the American public decides to reach out to the FCC, it's incumbent upon me and my colleagues to listen. Mm -hmm. You uh, have on one side these internet service providers, the Comcast, the Verizon, the Fios, the RC, whatever. There's a, there's a lot of them <laughs> Those guys. who are making a strong case that says if you uh, want us to provide products that are innovative, that better meet the needs of certain consumers, we have to have the freedom to be able to charge for different tiers of internet, for different, different kinds of services. That's what they're arguing. And you have uh, the FCC chairman, uh, your, your colleague, Chairman Pai, who says that only in an unregulated environment can these companies um, really, really innovate. What, what do you think is driving uh, that effort uh, by them to, to make a push for repealing those rules? That's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about encouraging investment. Yeah, that's what we hear. Mm -hmm. In yeah. our record. And I respect that my colleagues are really motivated by that because we all want infrastructure investment. But I think that the record on this is a little different than they describe. 
I think that there are data out there that suggests that since these rules were put in place, we've actually seen more investment in broadband networks, not less. I'd also point out that in Securities and Exchange Commission filings, we don't have the same aggression towards these policies we see in front of the Federal Communications Commission. In other words, these big companies are complaining before us, but not one of our regulatory counterparts. So I think that the impact on investment is a lot on these network providers is a lot smaller than anyone has really acknowledged. I will also point out that as the FCC, we need to think about the public interest, the broader digital age economy, which is wildly benefited from having these rules in place. It means that everyone, small businesses, big businesses online can reach out to customers who are right next door, across town and across the country. And by virtue of doing that, we give lots of small businesses an amazing shot at success. And I think that the impact of these rules on that part of the economy is something that's understated. You know, get it, going back to the the reason for these rules in, in the first place and why uh, the FCC felt like it had to act in 2006 and in 2015, were there examples and have we seen examples in recent years of internet service providers engaging in anti-competitive behavior that may have been a boon to their business interests and their bottom line, but hurt everyday consumers? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, for starters, I think it's important to point out that since 2006, we've had net neutrality policies in place, which have a way of disciplining market actors. So they don't generally engage in that behavior. But even despite those rules, We've seen them do it on more than a few occasions. We've seen, for instance, blocking of voice over internet protocol services, which are internet telephony. Mm -hmm. We've also seen some blocking of different types of peer-to-peer software sharing. And we've also seen some blocking of services like FaceTime and Google Wallet that might be familiar to us all. Mm -hmm. Now, in most cases, the FCC was able to resolve those issues because it had network neutrality policies in place. Now, if we remove those policies, we're given the green light for broadband providers to go ahead and start blocking, start throttling, start charging premiums for reaching different types of services. I think that's problematic because those companies have the technical ability to do that. And we're going to give them the business incentive to go ahead and get started doing that. So I think, unfortunately, if these rules go away, we might see more of that behavior in the future. And what what does that mean for kind of your normal everyday Internet usage? I think most people, when they wake up, you get on your phone. What's the latest update? Who's who? Who's the latest scandal to drop in Washington, D.C. terms? Yeah, or I wake up, I look news? at Michelle Juando's Twitter feed. I see what she's been talking about. And then I Igor has gotten into a Twitter battle with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you might check your email. Um, I think if you take public transportation, hopefully you're listening to Thinking Cap on your way in um, or you're catching up on Netflix. And I think that's how most people, I think on average, embrace or use the internet. If these rules go into place, what changes in kind of your daily usage? Well, I think it ultimately will be up to our broadband providers Hmm. They can block or censor content. We'll give them the power to do that. And taken to an extreme, what you could have is instead of this open Internet experience you know today, your broadband offering could look a lot more like cable television, where Mm. you have a set of websites that you are able to access for free and others for which you might have to pay a premium. 
like mm. with pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. So they'll have the power to carve the internet up into these fast lanes and slow lanes where certain services uh, move at warp speed and others are like being consigned to a bumpy road. And that's really hard for so many innovators who sit at the edge of the network and want to push their services out, but can't pay special tools to get into that fast lane. And mm-hmm. so um, all of those things are possible. You take these rules away. Now, right now, most of the broadband providers say they won't do that. But again, if you take these policies away and they have the incentive to do this as a business matter, I think it will change the way that we access the internet and the way we experience it every day. Mm-hmm. What kind of incentives and business decisions do you imagine internet service providers will be guided by when they are able to kind of have free reign in how they design packages for, mm-hmm. for consumers? Well, ultimately, they're about increasing their revenue. Can't fault them for that. That's mm-hmm. what businesses do. And right now, they get revenue from you as a broadband subscriber. You pay them for, say, 25 megabits worth of speed, and you can reliably go where you want and do what you want with that speed. But I think they'll also try to develop relationships on the other side with websites and social platforms and compel those Mm -hmm. content providers to also pay them in order to ensure that you can reach them. And if they fail to pay them, they'd have the right to block or throttle those services. So I think it could um, devolve into a situation where you have revenue in two directions, Mm. And as a result, you as a consumer will not have the same freedoms you do today to go where you want and do what you want online. So so from their perspective, this is really another or a new revenue stream for their businesses, that being able to charge interne- in- internet companies or internet websites uh, a certain fee to get into this fast lane is a way they could make money that they can't currently earn. I think that's fair. It's hard to know. It hasn't been – our policy in the United States to date, but we've seen those kind of activities. Are there global examples yeah. there where this have is allowed? Have you seen this in other places? And um, what has happened there? Oh, we have a whole bunch of different conversations about net neutrality taking place around the world. Uh, we had the Indian regulator pass some policies yesterday. We've had a fairly progressive series of policies in Canada with respect to net neutrality. Uh, uh, on the web right now, you see a lot of pictures of what it's like in Portugal, where they have fairly aggressive zero rating policies, which means that you can get access to some websites functionally for free, but other websites you might have to pay some more because mm-hmm. they haven't paid off the broadband provider. So there's a mix of policies around the world, but I think the United States internet economy has been the envy of the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, the internet was created here on our shores. The apps economy started here. Everyone with a good idea could sit in their garage, put something online, and create economic possibility, political possibility. I think we want to keep that. For someone who gets to decide that, yeah, you know, this part of the internet is only really going to work if, if we bless it, if we like it. ISPs are just much more sophisticated and spend a lot more money, 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 money,
Um, tell us about Fight for the Future and what y'all are doing to fight back against, you know, this uh, Verizon lawyer turned FCC commissioner, head guy, whatever, Ajit Pai. Sure. So Fight for the Future is a nonprofit that's been working to protect the Internet as a platform for freedom of expression, creativity, and social change. Uh, and, you know, we're pretty busy right now, as folks might imagine. I'm sure everyone's been seeing uh, the news of, uh, as you said, this Verizon lawyer who's now running the FCC trying to get rid of net neutrality. Now, you may still be asking, what is net neutrality? Net neutrality is essentially the First Amendment of the Internet. It's what prevents big cable companies like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T from engaging in censorship and otherwise controlling what we see and do online. So the FCC just announced uh, this sort of official final call for a vote on this. It's going to be coming up on December 14th. So we're basically doing two major things. One is we're encouraging everyone to call their lawmakers right now through our website at battleforthenet.com. More than 200,000 people have done that in just the last 24 hours alone. So there's a huge public backlash happening right now. But we need to get this into member of Congress's local districts uh, right in their backyards to put pressure on them. So we're organizing protests across the country at Verizon retail stores, uh, shining a light on the corruption that's happening here, where we have a top guy from Verizon running the agency that's supposed to be overseeing them. Uh, so these protests are going to be across the country. You can find one near you or sign up to host one at verizonprotest.com, as you said. So are you getting any feedback from any members of Congress that, that this is working? Have you, has anybody reported back that, uh, I'm, I'm assuming this has become largely a partisan issue that, uh, you know, Democrats are in favor of net neutrality, Republicans are opposed to it? So outside of Washington, D.C., this is not a partisan issue at all. Uh, polling actually shows that more than 73 percent of Republican voters uh, support the existing net neutrality rules, uh, more than 80 percent of Democrats. It's actually one of the few issues that basically everyone agrees on, uh, unless they're a lobbyist for one of these big telecom companies. Mm. Uh, and that's what really gives us opportunity here. Uh, inside Washington, D.C., uh, those same lobbyists, have been working really hard to make it partisan. Uh, and so that's why it's extra important that folks are reaching out to Republican lawmakers right now. They need to understand that their own base is not with them on this. Uh, and there actually are some cracks in the wall. We're hearing uh, that the calls are making a difference and that there are Republicans that are considering uh, speaking out on this and, and saying that this is not the right direction for the FCC to be heading. Uh, so that makes it all the more important that people are getting out in the streets, uh, making those phone calls, um, because the, this chairman of the FCC, he's a, he's a Republican chairman. He's most likely to listen to members from his own party. Uh, that makes it an uphill battle for us uh, to push back against that misinformation coming from the cable lobby uh, and make sure that we make it clear this is not a partisan issue. Uh, it's a basic free speech issue that everyone can agree on. Yeah. Although it seems that the Republican Party has is, is much more vulnerable to big money. Uh, these days, uh, not to say that there aren't some Democrats who are as well, but um, any any particular Republicans that that are um, maybe inclined to be allies or that might be in tight electoral situations where this might be something that could, you know, enough pressure could push their uh, a change in their. Well, actually, I was going to say a change in their vote. To the best of my knowledge, there's not even legislation that would override the FCC, is there? So this is where this gets a little bit complicated, and it's important that people understand this. 
So we're not calling for Congress to legislate on this issue right now at all. That would be a terrible idea. As you just said, uh, you know, our Congress is extremely susceptible to money from uh, big companies. Uh, and the very same companies that are trying to kill net neutrality have been giving hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions uh, to lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, so legislation on net neutrality right now would be a disaster. It would likely undermine uh, the FCC rules that we have on the books uh, and essentially permanently put a nail in the coffin of net neutrality. So instead of legislation, what we need Congress to do is exercise their oversight authority over the FCC and step in and demand that the FCC slow down or abandon this incredibly unpopular plan to gut the, the rules that are on the books right now. What kind There's of absolutely no reason to get rid of those rules. And Congress should be doing their job in making sure that the FCC isn't rushing toward a vote uh, when it has no evidence or any reason to do so other than uh, to give a big handout to these giant telecom companies. Right. But, I've, I, you know, I've been hearing about oversight my whole life. <laughs> I remember when, uh, you know, there were there there was uh, going to be an attempted effort by the FDA to regulate tobacco back in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I believe it was an oversight hearing about the F FDA that that caused them to bring in. I may be wrong on that, but it, it was my recollection to bring in those uh, seven tobacco industry executives who all just basically lied to Congress. I mean, how, is there any are there any teeth to congressional oversight? With the FCC, there definitely is. And again, you know, this is more about, you know, what's important here is that if Ajit Pai starts getting flack from his own party, from Republican members of Congress. Uh, you know, they're telling him, look, this is becoming a problem for us. This is going to be an issue for us in the election. Uh, that's when he starts to slow down. Right. So there's political mm -hmm. considerations here as well as kind of concrete legislative mechanisms. Um, but, you know, in you know, you're absolutely right. You know, congressional oversight of federal agencies uh, often is a joke or, you know, is is pushing in the other direction where, uh, you know, Congress is actually trying to, rip, you know, pull back federal agencies when they're trying to do something good for the public. Right. Uh, but in this case, uh, you know, it's, it's a simple uh, situation where the more calls we can get into members of Congress, the more we can lay this at their feet and make it clear to them that if they sit back and don't speak out and allow this uh, rogue federal agency that's, you know, blatantly uh, acting against the interests of their constituents, um, that they'll be to blame and that we won't let them get away with it and we won't forget it come election time. How is it that a former lawyer for Verizon ends up the head of the FCC? <laughs> well, unfortunately, many federal agencies have that revolving door uh, between industry and, uh, uh, you know, sort of government. Um, and, you know, it's actually not a new problem either. Uh, it's important. And, and I think that speaks to how this is not a partisan issue. Uh, if you recall, the last time we had this big debate, uh, the chair, the chairman of the FCC, who was appointed by President Obama, also used to work as a top cable lobbyist. Uh, and, you know, he was heading in oh, the it was Tom Wheeler as well yeah. until there was massive outcry from uh, people from across the political spectrum. Millions of Internet users speaking out, calling their lawmakers, calling the FCC was what got him to turn around. Uh, right. So this is not a new problem. Uh, and it wasn't President Obama that put these rules into place. Uh, they were fought for, uh, again, by millions of people uh, and who fought an uphill battle because there was a, a former cable lobbyist running the FCC then as well. Right. That was Tom uh, and, Wheeler. You know, yeah. that's really what's at stake here. Evan, Evan am I debate about net neutrality? Uh, we have to change that entire corrupt system uh, and ensure that public voices are heard, not just lobbyists. Yeah. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left. Where where what should people do? Where do they go to do it? 
Go online right now. Go to battleforthenet.com and call your lawmakers. That's the single most important thing you can do. If you can show up at a protest at a Verizon store in your area on December 7th, that's one week before the FCC votes, that'll be a big help too. You can find a protest near you at verizonprotests.com. We've just heard clips today starting with We the Podcast discussing how concentration of corporate power results in the loss of liberty. The Bradcast discussed the recent FCC vote paving the way for more media consolidation. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour examined media consolidation as a threat to democracy. The Bradcast also reported on the story of the Koch brothers-backed purchase of Time magazine. Laura Flanders gave her commentary on only wanting monopoly-busting lawsuits for Christmas. Thinking Cap interviewed one of the FCC commissioners about why we need to save net neutrality. And finally, we just heard Tom Hartman speaking to the campaign director of fightforthefuture.org and battleforthenet.com, your headquarters for the fight to save net neutrality. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Dear Democratic Party, we're through. This is your Dear John letter. I'm finished. I'm not taking it anymore. I'm tired of your lies, your deceit, your assumptions that I'm just going to follow you wherever you go. No, I won't take this anymore. I'm packing up my support. I'm packing up my money, and I'm going to take it elsewhere. I'm going to find someone who I'll be happy with. For way too long now, you've taken me for granted. Well, I won't take it anymore. At the last local election, 50%, half of the candidates that were Republican ran unopposed. And it wasn't because they were fantastic. You need to do better. And I just won't take it anymore. I will find someone else to support. And if by chance I happen to vote for someone who happens to be a Democrat, do not take that as an assumption I'm coming back. Because I'm going to be watching. And I won't stand for this corruptness, this, this misrepresentation. There are other options out there. I will find them. I will have to look hard, but I will find them. And if by chance you decide that you want to make a change, I'll be watching and I'll be looking and perhaps I will be open to negotiation. But for now, be aware, I'm done with you. Hey Jay, this is Jackson Lanza. I just wanted to bring something up that is, I think, pretty important and you'll listen up, you know, the listeners of the show can really help out. Recently, Mike Cernovich has been trying to smear Sam Celia of the Majority Report by uh, claiming that a sarcastic tweet, sarcastically denigrating members of the Hollywood elite who were sort of giving a pass to philanthropy back in 2009 was actually uh, a, a sort of condoning of uh, a child's rape. And you'll have to, you know, look it up on the Majority Report's uh, YouTube page, but... Uh, Basically, Mike Sinovich himself, uh, I believe, has been 
implicated in, in rape himself, and has also tweeted tweets out there where he's basically said rape doesn't exist, and one other thing he said was like the best sex resembles rape. Like he's an absolutely disgusting human being, and so he is trying to get Sam defied from QIT uh, and MSNBC, etc., and trying to get him to lose advertisers and. Uh, I think it's really important, so uh, hopefully you'll bring that up uh, at some point. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So as we just heard from Zach in Atlanta, progressive media as always, to some degree or another, is under attack. Uh, I, I I hadn't heard of this. You know, it, this is sort of breaking news that, uh, you know, just in the last day or so. And so Zach brought this to my attention. I went and checked out Sam's uh, re- you know, recorded, written statement on this whole issue. And it really is unbelievably ridiculous. The, the lengths to which people will go to lie and deceive in order to smear people in in the hopes of strangling their business, you know, preventing people from being able to make a living because they disagree with them is, um, is pretty absurd. And I, I'm well aware of progressive media campaigns that are sort of on the other side. They try to uh, go after Glenn Beck's advertisers or Rush Limbaugh, but those people say really fundamentally terrible things and it's not an accident and it's not satire and the mirror image of that is people going after sam cedar pretending that his satire was earnest and then displaying that as a reason to pull advertising dollars or you know fire him from uh, an msnbc position or whatever and and it's just so unbelievably disingenuous or they don't know how satire works that that is a distinct possibility but uh, not not i think it's more likely that they are bad people rather than so dumb as to not understand satire so I feel like we've been going through hit after hit uh, for a while now. Uh, there was Adpocalypse a few months ago. I didn't really talk about that. Uh, it, you know, it, it wasn't so much on my radar because I'm not on YouTube. Uh, so Adpocalypse, for those of you who don't know, was when Google, the owner of YouTube, implemented an algorithm to try to prevent advertisers from being able to advertise on really uh, offensive videos. And so they were trying to weed out like white supremacist sites. And what they ended up weeding out was pretty much all news sites. So all the progressive uh, shows who you hear frequently uh, on Best of Left or, uh, you know, a much wider range than that just had their ads pretty much zeroed out because they got caught up in that same algorithm. So that was adpocalypse. People took just a punch to the gut in terms of their uh, advertising dollars that, that hurt their budgets. And then more recently, like my ads, which aren't related to an algorithm like that, 
also dried up for reasons that I still don't fully understand. So they've been flatlined for a while. And, and now, of course, as we're hearing in today's episode, media consolidation more generally and net neutrality being threatened. And, and you know, no one knows exactly what that is going to mean for independent media like this, uh, other than it's definitely not going to be good. So, you know, as we just heard from Zach, like this concerted attack, uh, you know, trying to defund progressive media through lies and deception, you know, it's sort of another uh, step in that, <laughs> on that path, you know, the, another, another piece of the pattern. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, attacking Sam for satire, it's, you know, it's like attacking the onion for journalistic malpractice or something. It's, uh, it's absurd on its face, but that, you know, that's why we beg for money on a regular basis. And I, I get, I get the, the painfulness of having to relate news like that and then shift it to and that's why we all ask for money all the time like no one likes asking for money you know we we get it it's it, it's annoying to you and to us uh it, it's it's not the best scenario but we sort of have to and like we we don't like to sound like the sky is falling uh most of the time it's not Sometimes it is, at least to a certain extent. And, and it, I don't know, it's just as a side note here, here's my pet peeve on, uh, on fundraising pitches. Uh, it, it just always really bothers me whenever I hear a podcaster claim that, you know, that they need donations or, you know, ad dollars or whatever to help keep the show free. It's ridiculous. That's like nonsense words. There is no viable business model that allows a show, you know, except maybe, maybe some bizarre, like 0.1% of shows out there, uh, could manage to put their show behind a paywall and survive. Generally speaking, if you, you know, people have tried to go that route before and it is catastrophic. They, they don't, they don't end up making more money or, or bring their audience all behind a paywall. They just lose their audience and disappear. So, any show, this one included, should not ever threaten, oh, uh, we have to, you know, I hope, hope we make enough money so that we can keep the show free. Uh, that, that's not a danger. So not to worry. You know, I am never going to threaten that, uh, not only because it wouldn't work, but I, I wouldn't want to. That's antithetical to the purpose of the show. So that's, that's just a pet peeve. But, you know, we are existing in a media landscape where the only option is to give your work away for free. And the internet culture that we have all been conditioned in is to believe that everything online is free. You know, I, I'm even working on an upcoming episode that could very well be called like the price of free. And it, it, it's, it's all about how all of these free online services exist, but the price we pay is that we pay for them with ourselves. You know, we get email and search and social media and, and we get all of that for free, but it's because we pay for it with our data, you know? So we, we sell ourselves in exchange for free services, but those free services convince us that free is normal. So then when we consume media online, we also think that should be free. And to a certain extent it is, but that's only true. It's only really true if either those shows we consume sell ads, uh, in which case you're the product again. You know, you, you've been sold as a consumer to the advertisers, or 
if there are people donating money or, you know, some big institution backing that program as like a loss leader to raise their profile or something, who knows? But the money always has to come from somewhere. And sort of like with money in politics, like you'd rather have the politicians paid off by the citizens than by the corporations. Pretty much the same with media. You'd rather have your media be paid off by you, the listener, than corporations or some big backing organization. So that's the line we're walking. And, uh, you know, I mean, personally, like I long for the day when we have enough paying members that advertising is either a total afterthought or we can just stand on principle and refuse to do it because we just think that's the better thing to do. Like, I do think that would be the better thing to do. This is just not the case right now that we could do that. Neither is it the case for any of my colleagues in this progressive media sphere. So, uh, you know, if, if you want better, more resilient, progressive media landscape, there's not really a great shortcut around just having to be willing to pay for it. Even if all you can afford is a buck a month, you know, obviously the more you can give, the more helpful, but the math can work the other way too. Like most shows get well below 5% of listeners to donate. Sometimes it's, you know, 1%. And, and that's normal. I, I promise that is the norm. But if we change the culture, change the mindset, and got something like 25% of people to give, even if they only gave a couple of bucks a month, we would be totally solid on that indefinitely uh, with no need for ads or anything. And then if the people who were able to give a little bit more did give more, well, then that percentage starts to come way down even further than that. So what I'm saying is that the math can work in that other paradigm if we just decide to make it work. Uh, you know, if we understand the value of work and pay for the stuff that we get value from accordingly. And, you know, I, I, I try to walk that walk myself as well. Like before I was in the progressive media arena myself, I was just a fan. So, you know, I am a member of shows like the Young Turks and the Majority Report from more than a decade ago. Uh, you know, little known fact, I'm actually member number six at the Young Turks. If you've ever heard Jank thanking members and you know, hey, thanks member number three thousand four hundred and you know whatever, I was there at the beginning. So I, I'm I'm totally down with with this whole business model. Always have been. Uh, you know, it's a big reason why I adopted it myself. Like it makes sense. It, it uh, I, I bought into the whole mentality of how independent progressive media or, or just any kind of independent media can sustain itself when it has the backing of the people who actually consume it and they're not dependent on commercials. Like, commercials can help. They can help get you to the next level, potentially uh, help you expand. But if all the ad advertisers just went away and the members are still there, well, then you still have a show. So you get my point. I'm, I'm one of you in this. Like, I live on both sides of this issue. So I know the kinds of feelings that you are probably having about the idea of donating to the shows you listen to. Uh, so I, my guess is that the biggest one is either something like, uh, well, my small contribution won't make that much of a difference. Or you think that, well, the show I'm considering supporting seems to be doing fine without me, so... It must not be that urgent. Uh, and he, I have two responses, one, one for each of those. So first, I think we need to get out of the mindset that small contributions 
don't make a big difference and get into the mindset of understanding how a large number of small contributions can be absolutely transformative. And then secondly, to answer the uh, idea about urgency, uh, let me just explain how I think about the budget of this show. It fluctuates, you know, month to month and year to year, but it always falls into one of three ranges. Uh, So the first is panic mode. Uh, This is when you're not making enough to get by. And the last time I was in panic mode, it was when I was first trying to get this show to be my job in uh, 2009. So it's, it's been a while since I was in panic mode. I can be thankful for that. The second range is comfortable mode. And that's just where, you know, the show is making as much as it needs. You can pay the expenses, the vast majority of which are salaries, but, you know, there's not a bunch of extra money floating around. And then the third range is seeking mode. Uh, I I just came up with that term. It's, I I don't don't love it. It doesn't roll off the tongue. But, uh, you know, this is when the show begins to generate more income than it really needs, and I start seeking for something to spend it on. And the last major time that that happened was 2011 or so, and that's when we jumped from not doing activism and not being active on social media to doing both of those things. That was sort of a big step, so it required an extra person to work part-time, so that money had to be invested. We've mostly been in comfortable mode ever since. You know, we've grown a little bit over the years, earned a little bit more, but that's just allowed for sort of gradual expansion. We sort of dip our toe into seeking mode. Uh, You know, for instance, Amanda does a lot more these days than just activism and social media, including, you know, she's on-air talent during the members shows, and she built all of the web logistics for the winter fundraiser. So, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we're able to pay someone who does the stuff. But like a couple of months ago, when ads were still doing pretty well, I started thinking like, maybe we're getting close to seeking mode. And maybe we're going to have enough that we could actually spend it on a new ongoing expense. And I started having daydreams of hiring an associate producer. And this person could come on and, you know, help uh, on the back end and help produce the show in a way that we could uh, boost the show back up to at least eight new episodes per month instead of six. And then advertising mysteriously flatlined. We lost 20% of our income in a very short time. So, you know, we, we didn't like fall straight down into panic mode, but that dream of, of uh, an associate producer faded away pretty quickly and, and the potential of getting back up to, uh, uh, you know, the extra two new episodes per month disappeared. So, you know, that, that's just my personal story, but I know that other hosts think about these things similarly. Like, no one gets into progressive podcasting to get rich. And, uh, you know, I think it goes without saying that we're trying to make a positive difference in the world, so that same mode of thinking really kicks in whenever there's extra money flowing in. Like, we can't help but start to think about how it can be invested to make more of a difference, to produce more content or better content, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my answer to to those thoughts I'm imagining that you were having about, you know, the shows that you think don't really need your support. Like, yeah, maybe it's true they don't need your support to survive, but what you and everyone else ends up missing out on is what those shows could become if they did have the support of you and 5 to 25% of fellow listeners, even 
chipping in just a buck or two a month, the transformation would be amazing. I promise you. So I highly suggest you go and support whatever sources you get the most value out of, even if it's only a buck a month. Patreon is a good place to start. Lots of shows have pages there, so you can pledge to all the ones you like, and you'll only be billed once at the beginning of each month. That's a feature that people were asking for for years. People would ask, like, Jay, you know, you should partner with, you know, these other shows and come up with a way that I can have just one membership that gets billed once a month and be so much easier. Well, Patreon is the answer to that. So I suggest you take advantage of it. And, and so, yes, we have to ask you for money. I have to ask you for money, just like everyone else. You know, we, we took a hit on advertising recently. We may take another hit soon. That that shoe hasn't dropped yet, but it may. Uh, I went into details on that on a members episode Fingers crossed that uh, it won't happen, but we have to see. We, 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 may, we may end up in panic mode. Uh, I'll certainly be letting you know if we are in panic mode, but that's just a sense of uh, some of the things going on behind the scenes uh, here and across the board. A lot of people are having concerns about finances, advertising, targeted attacks, net neutrality, the whole gamut. Uh, so whatever you can do to support us and get us ready for whatever's coming next, uh, it, it would be very much appreciated. So uh, just, of course, a quick thanks right now to recent uh, people who have donated to my Climate Right fundraiser, Stephen H., Ross M., and Dusty W. Uh, thanks so much for uh, signing up on the Climate Right fundraiser, as well as getting set up on Patreon. If you would like to join in on that, donating to support the show, my climate ride, any other progressive media outlets out there, or all of the above, uh, please do. You can either head to patreon.com slash best of the left or check out the winter fundraiser banner at bestofleft.com to get started. Yeah, and, and you know, look, look at that. Like, I, I almost said that I, I was going to promise to get back to politics next time rather than just talking about the fundraiser, but then again, like, everything is politics, right? Properly funding our media is is not the least of our political concerns. So, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder why.